Hey everyone, welcome back to the Up Your Glow podcast. Many of you are probably well aware of the COVID-19 crisis, also the coronavirus, as it has been several weeks since the outbreak in the United States. I felt it would be really helpful to bring in one of our very own scientific advisors here at Vinto, Dr. Nate DiNicola. Nate works for ACOG, which is the American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. He is fabulous. He's been working in the OB space for many years, and he focuses primarily leading the telehealth group and its use in prenatal care for ACOG. And he also spent a lot of his time studying environmental factors and environmental factors impact on the prenatal population here in the United States. So we're very excited to bring this podcast to you. It can be very overwhelming to watch the news or different Instagram influencer accounts or, you know, whatever it is, wherever you pick up your information. And it can cause a lot of stress and anxiety. So our goal with bringing Nate in is to clear up some of the questions surrounding its impact on pregnant women, the impact on our fertility population or those trying to conceive, and of course, the aftermath, so the impact on our postpartum population. We also go a little bit into telehealth. I think you'll find it really interesting and our goals for telemedicine here at Vinto. We are obviously big fans of telehealth and are going to be doing a lot more in the coming weeks, months, and years. So please enjoy. Thanks for being here again. Yeah, sure. Yeah. If you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I'm Nate Diacola and OBGYN here in Washington, D.C., and I, in the past, have done specialty training in either you know health policy research and how that connects to initially social and mobile media, but now telehealth. And so I was at the University of Pennsylvania Social Media Lab, which is now the Center for Digital Health. And I currently serve the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists as their chair of telehealth. Great. So ACOG is really sort of like our governing body that we look to for guidelines on prenatal care, correct? Right, yeah. They're the leading voice for OBGYNs in the U.S., you know, over 60,000 members, and they provide, yeah, the, the, the nationwide guidance for things like prenatal care and, and GYN care. Great. Well, we are lucky to have you walking us through <laughs> this pandemic crisis of COVID-19 and how it impacts women's health specifically. So we'll go ahead and jump in with what are the latest up-to-date guidelines in terms of COVID-19 and its potential impact on pregnant women? I mean, is there anything that we need to be aware of? So there there are a few kind of layers to the message. The, The first is that to date, we do not see any heightened risk for pregnant women. So in other words, we don't see any evidence that pregnant women are at risk for worse complications if you were to achieve, if you were to acquire COVID-19 than non-pregnant women. And we don't see, to date, any evidence of vertical transmission, meaning that it's passed on to the fetus or that would affect the newborn. Now, all of that is said, understanding that this is incomplete data at the time. 
and we'll need the benefit of, of months more data to see if there's any effect about, say, you know, exposure in the first trimester as opposed to the third trimester and just accumulating more data. But, but where we stand right now, there's not any heightened risk for pregnant women. That said, the other part of the message is that we have seen cases now of COVID having severe consequences for young people. That includes women of reproductive age. So, so pregnant women should be following the, all the same advice that really everyone should be following when it comes to things like social distancing and appropriate quarantines and local advisories that maybe, you know, are, are kind of, you know, doing shelter in place. All those would still apply to young, healthy, pregnant women. But there's nothing right now that is heightened about that state during pregnancy, as opposed to some other things where you might think that pregnant women would be more vulnerable. So for example, you know, there's a lot of comparisons that are made about flu season, and there's a lot of reasons why you know, these are not the perfect parallels. But we do, for that reason, advise the flu vaccine for every pregnant woman during, during flu season because they are more vulnerable to that, to that virus. So that there are times when we do change guidance for pregnant women, but at this time, we don't have anything different to, to say. Yeah, and I think, so when you're saying that outcomes, we've seen poor outcomes for women of a younger age. Are you talking about the death rate specifically in terms of outcomes? Not necessarily. I mean, it's not, like we said, there's no real risk factor. That right, we've right. Seen so, with this. so you mean like to the mom herself? Yeah, Is just that, that you know, most, most pregnant women are, you know, in the reproductive age group. And, and even with, you know, the, the category of advanced maternal age, we're still compared to COVID vulnerable groups in a, in a young age bracket. People in that group, there's still very rare case reports, fortunately. I mean, overall, the numbers are not you know, spiking, but, but we have had, had young patients either need intensive care or need ventilators or, or you know, some rare cases uh, have mortality. Okay, so, got it. So just kind of give a balanced message that you know, we don't have a heightened risk right now for pregnancy, but there's definitely not an invincible status for just being under 50 years old. That makes total sense. Thanks for clearing that up. And in terms of precautions, I know we spoke about this yesterday. You don't need to be wearing a mask. Save those for our health providers, please. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the people who are on the front lines, the, the doctors, the nurses, everybody who's, who's providing care in the hospital are having to ration these supplies. So donating those would be a much better use of, of those masks. And the only reason really that, that pregnant women or anybody would need to be wearing the mask is if uh, you are symptomatic or if you have the diagnosis. Okay. And then even in that case, if you are symptomatic or have the diagnosis, you really shouldn't be going outside. There's, there's nothing about pregnancy that you should be wearing the mask, you know, when you go outside. Yes. Thank you. One thing that has popped up in several accounts I've seen or reports is something specifically from the UK. And I've seen this now multiple times on different nurses, Instagram, personal accounts, emails, email threads. And it's that the UK recommends for women who are 20 week, 28 weeks or more to, if you are working in patient care, to stay home. But that is not the case in the US, correct? Right. We have not adopted that position 
you, you can see where there would be that kind of thought process for pregnant women. Because like I said, in, in other situations, pregnant women and young children are grouped in vulnerable populations. So they would be grouped in the same kind of risk category as people who are 65 and older or 70 and older. And that's precisely why we have, again, the, the flu vaccine recommendation every year. Because pregnancy, in some cases, can weaken the immune system and making you more prone to certain infections. So the UK has made the decision to group pregnant women in that same class for vulnerable populations. It, it's not entirely clear that's based on actual reports of pregnant right. women at higher risk. It's you know more based on some principles that that you can understand. But there's there's also the reasons why why the US and other nations have not taken that position. Thank you for clearing that up. I think it's really important for us to <laughs> disseminate that information. And just because you see something in social media doesn't necessarily mean it's true for the U.S. right now for you. So I appreciate you <laughs> clearing that up for a lot of our listeners do work in patient care um, and I'm sure concerned about that. Yes. Yeah. There's obviously still room for all the universal precautions. I mean, and, and those... Those are addressed typically at the institution hospital level, and all of those should be followed. And, and it's understandable why women who are pregnant would maybe have a heightened concern about if they will have full protection from those precautions, which is just all the more reason why it's important for the hospitals to be the ones receiving the you know, personal protective equipment. Exactly. Now for a moment, I just want to clear this up too, if you don't mind speaking to it for a little bit. It's a lot of the fertility clinics across the United States have closed. And we've seen this with a lot of clinics or medical practices that have been deemed sort of maybe not necessarily essential. You know, again, we could have an ethical debate on right now if fertility is essential or not essential. We don't want to get into that. But could you help us understand why you think these fertility clinics decided to shut down and let women know, you know, if you are trying naturally, is that safe to be doing that right now? Sure. So it's part of the, the broader nationwide and really worldwide effort to contain this viral spread. And as a result, across all industries, we are, we are uh, you know, maintaining appropriate social distancing and even doing shelter in place and only working from home all the effort to prevent this pandemic from persisting for, you know, we don't even know a reasonable timeline, but, but to keep it as time limited as possible, all industries are shutting down things that are considered non-essential. And in medicine, when it comes to surgery, gets us to the category of elective procedures or elective surgeries. And yeah. those have across the board been, been canceled. Now, what counts elective is a not simple question to answer. So, for example, obviously deliveries and C-sections are essential, and those are all still happening as scheduled. Patients who, who have you know, reproductive service needs or have a miscarriage needs treatment, that is, that is essential. Those are still happening. When it comes to things that are related to fertility, it, it, it certainly is important to know that, yeah, for, for these women and their families, every month matters. But you know, until we know a total timeline for this, in the short term, those are considered elective. So things like you know, achieving pregnancy with assisted reproductive technology could at least be postponed until a later time from where we sit right now. 
Right. But for women who, you know, for people, families, women who are thinking about achieving pregnancy right now, no, there is no extra or heightened risk about this time. And in fact, I think, you know, we're also seeing these memes or jokes on social media about a likely COVID-19 or Corona baby boom 10 months from now, which, which, you know, could become a reality. I mean, there's a popular commercial every year or so at the Super Bowl about Super Bowl babies in those cities. And there actually is something that backs that up. We often do see baby booms in those areas. Uh, I was in New Orleans during residency training when, uh, you know, the New Orleans Saints won the Super Bowl and Mardi Gras was occurring all within a two-week period. And we did see a baby boom about 10 months later. So that may happen. And there's nothing about that happening that, that makes us have any kind of extra concern. Okay, that's great to know. I think there are a lot of people, again, in this community or listening who are trying to achieve a pregnancy naturally. That's part of what we offer at Bento. So it's reassuring to hear that we could try and then know that, hey, we might have a baby boom. I mean, my dad certainly agrees. <laughs> he won't stop texting me about it. He's like, I really think we're going to see <laughs> a baby boom. And hospitals are going to be really overwhelmed, like December. So... <laughs> And just one more point there. I mean, it, it is a life-changing event to achieve a pregnancy. And so yeah. we, we do want these fertility services to be available when, when they appropriately can be. Exactly. Uh, however, I should mention, it's not uncommon for OB visits to, you know, see a pregnant woman who's coming in for some kind of fertility counseling, you know, getting ready to go see the fertility specialist or kind of in that process. And then all of a sudden they're pregnant. Yeah. Uh, so those things do happen. and for people who are trying to achieve pregnancy, again, there's, there's no problem with trying the natural way for the time being. Yeah, definitely. I think that's good to hear. I know yeah, some things can't be helped and, and you need to have IVF, but for those that are unexplained or might be different issues, yeah, give it a try. And that segues kind of <laughs> into my next question for you, favorite topic of the moment, which is, the restricted access in OB settings. So that means both in the clinic, what are OBGYN clinics actively seeing right now, and then translate to the delivery room. I know certain cities, New York is the only one right now that's put the ban in the delivery room, but I'd love to hear from ACOG, what are the the general guidelines that have come out in terms of like in-office OB visits versus GYN? And, and the ban and the delivery room. Yeah, so I'll, I'll adjust the first part of that question okay. uh, from, from the ACOG guidelines. And ACOG does have on its main homepage, which, by the way, is a brand new website this month. That, that was not intended to coincide with COVID, but it happened to. <laughs> Good. It's a very slick new website. It's very navigable by patients and providers. And the homepage has, has right now, obviously, dedicated to COVID resources. And so you can find you know, many important things there, including the the FAQs, the frequently asked questions about COVID. And it applies to these types of questions about what is the appropriate use of, I'll I'll start with outpatient care during this time. And again, in the effort to prevent viral spread, most, if not all, elective, maybe elective is the wrong word there, but, but visits that could be done virtually are being converted to virtual visits or Visits okay. that could be postponed are being postponed. And telehealth is filling an important gap there. 
where the virtual consultation can provide many of these services, which which are still are still essential. You know, so you know to, to go kind of the primary care route for a minute, things like management of blood pressure or glucose control, these things are still essential. Exactly. But they also can be done with remote monitoring and telehealth options, including virtual visits, kind of like the Zoom that we're doing right here. And from the, the practices that are adopting this, we're actually seeing that, that somewhere in the range of you know, 60% of their virtual visits or their telehealth visits are non-COVID related. Uh, it's patients who don't have COVID symptoms, but still need their care and so are achieving it this way. And you know, many of the patients are saying they've you know, become converts to this and they actually want it to continue post-COVID. And so I, I think we'll probably see a blended model where it's not an either or, but telehealth really augments traditional in-person care. And, and the hybrid going forward is, is probably the best way to get the most access to most people. Right. I mean, if you're generally well, if it's something that can be managed within a 24-hour time frame where you don't need to be waiting, you know, weeks, months on end for an in-person visit only to be seen for, you know, quick, maybe five, 10 minutes. I think telehealth is an incredible option. And that's, we're so lucky at Binto to be in that digital space and launching our advanced telehealth platform in the next two to three weeks. So yeah, thanks for for bringing that up. Telehealth is, you know, mental health as well, yeast infections, UTIs. How could we sort of get those issues solved for women who are, you know, we're still going to experience all these things, even though COVID is happening. So how can we still take care of you? Yeah. So, so AHUG has, you know, fully supported the adoption of telehealth, especially in this time of the COVID response. And that includes guidelines on billing and coding, which are there again on the, on the COVID homepage. That includes things like we recently published a committee opinion discussing in pretty good detail how a practice could start telehealth if they wanted to, security, privacy considerations. There are new waivers about security and privacy that have been kind of loosened in this emergency response time. Those details are there on the website. So, so all of those are there. What is more difficult to define is what specifically counts as a condition for telehealth. And that is mostly left to the provider and the patient discretion. But, but there are many, many conditions that, that fall into this category. And then specifically to prenatal care, ACOG has provided examples for what it looks like for altered prenatal schedule, if you want to do more visits remotely or fewer in person. And there are resources even for what additional services now might need to be included in prenatal care, like uh, what you're discussing about mental health. So yeah. that's at the top of the list of extra considerations that are always there, but maybe a little heightened right now during the COVID response time. Oh, definitely. I'm sure many women out there are experiencing higher levels of anxiety. And then we really worry about prenatal depression spiking. And then, of course, postpartum depression. Yeah. And, and that does segue into the other part of your question, which is right. the inpatient side. And again, the, the policies that are being enacted are, are all done with, with the understanding that, that nobody wants to be alone during times of critical health moments. You know, so, so that includes things like birth, which obviously that's something where women rightfully would want support there in the room with them from people who are in their family or, or support person like a doula who they, who they know and trust. And so any restrictions on that 
are only done with with public health in mind. And you know, unfortunately, what we're seeing from some of the experiences, like in Italy and other places, where there's been a true, true outbreak, is the hospital could have been one of the conduits for spreading the disease. So, in other words, people come in, often healthy people come in and are exposed to healthcare workers who have been taking care of all the sick patients who did have COVID, and they go home and spread it further in the community. So the, the restrictions on who comes into the hospital are all done with that kind of community-focused health in mind. Now, that said, most institutions that, that we're seeing making policies are still allowing at least one visitor, uh, and often two. Visitor That's meaning, right. you know, support person, You'd never want someone to have to choose between, say, their their partner, their husband, or their doula. Right. Uh, and and so the institutions will make policies they think are most effective to keep the most people healthy. But it is still, at this time, kind of specific where where all visitors are are restricted. Yeah, I think you know on the flip side, or to play devil's advocate, you know, I I get not wanting to bring an additional person into a delivery room, especially in New York City, which is the epicenter of this crisis. But are we putting mom and baby at greater... I still think that's a public health issue. When you remove that support person, you leave this woman basically alone to advocate her for herself when she's <laughs> in a critical condition, giving birth and probably in an excruciating amount of pain and feeling extremely overwhelmed. How can this person be expected to advocate for themselves alone? And then is this going to increase poor outcomes for mom and baby postpartum? You know, we already have iffy outcomes for postpartum and maternal mortality here in the United States. So yeah, as the women's health nurse, I'm definitely concerned to see this happening. And I just worry about it becoming sort of a domino effect trend in other health systems outside of New York City. It, it's an important point because beyond the you know, self-evident benefit of having support people there for, for human reasons, we do have outcomes that show that if the yeah. support person is there, that, that outcomes do improve. So all, all of that is, is, is considered, and it, it is an important uh, kind of counterbalance to the very limited number of people in the room and the restrictions, and I, I think that will, that will factor in when hospitals are making the decision about how many people can be there, especially if it's a, it's a zero versus some question, uh, because even having one person there would make a difference for that support person and, and the benefits they can bring. And, exactly. And, and, you know, this is definitely a time when screening for things like either postpartum depression or other social determinants of health and other mental health considerations will be on, on even higher alert in the postpartum period. Right. And, I hope so. I mean, you know, you also just worry about immediate bonding after delivery. And we've seen research out at the University of Virginia showing the true effects of oxytocin or pitocin and that child down the road, the bonding experience, not just with mom and baby, but with the, you know, if it is a traditional family with the dad or the, the partner, whoever it is. And we've already, you know, even though ACOG put out the new guidelines for postpartum care to have, to move up that postpartum visit from three weeks, from six weeks to, what was it, within the first 
Yeah, the, the, the recommendation. Yeah, exactly. So, there, yeah, the, the the remodeling of postpartum care was all done with these kind of things in mind. You know? Right. But there are many either health conditions or ongoing need for healthcare that develop during pregnancy, and to just then have a, a gap from delivery until six weeks is not serving those needs. And no. <laughs> really, postpartum care should be a bridge to ongoing care. And so that, that's where the new guidelines, which do recommend at least some kind of check-in or connection in, the fir- in a shorter interval, so within three weeks. Right. So, I mean, even if telehealth is an option for a practice, you know, if you're listening and you are going to fall in this bucket of people that, you know, women that are impacted by this, talk to your healthcare provider, see if they offer telehealth consults or just a phone call within the two weeks after delivery. And I think that's really important. It's something that we are working on here at Binto to, you know, how can we be a bridge ourselves just to give you that, that touch point to a provider and we can have something flagged if something comes up and we can tell you if you really need to go in and be seen. But yeah, it's a massive physiological body and, and mental change when you, after delivery and, I think one of the biggest pitfalls is that insurance companies, <laughs> if, you're not, if you're not aware of this already, not you, Nate, but for those listening, insurance companies don't reimburse for postpartum care visits. Am I correct? It, it's so often, yeah, it's, it's often as part of a bundled payment. Yeah. Um, whether there's one or four. Uh, it doesn't matter. There's no difference. Yeah. One of the things that we are seeing as a result of this COVID response is that it has rapidly accelerated telehealth adoption. Yes. Probably accelerated telehealth by five to 10 years, just in this short time. And, and as a result, you know, we will see more opportunities to use telehealth that have frankly been there for a little while now, but rather than being a convenience, now they're a necessity. And yeah. that, will, that will certainly augment things like postpartum care. Already many patients would qualify for an in-person short interval visit based on uh, blood pressure screening or some other lab result follow-up, a postpartum hemorrhage check, or mood considerations. So many of those now with the combination of virtual visits and remote vital sign monitoring can and, and perhaps should be done remotely with telehealth. Yeah, I think that's incredible. I'm so glad that you know if there is a little bit of a silver lining in all of this, hopefully it brings awareness to maternal mental health to the need for postpartum care and especially the need for telehealth or digital health in some way so that we can connect with our patients more outside of the office. I think it's right. And and you mentioned the the ACOG updated guidelines on postpartum care. It does include a a short section on telehealth services. It is there and supported by the society. Okay. Well, I'll be sure to, of course, link the ACOG website in the description for this podcast episode so all of us can access it. And then before we go, if you wouldn't mind, again, we're obviously all thinking about viruses. We mentioned the flu, but what are some other protective measures that pregnant women can take down the road next season, next flu season? Just a reminder, again, that there are precautions that we can do to safeguard ourselves and keep ourselves healthy. Definitely. And it, it ties into ongoing preventative care or anticipatory guidance. Yeah. And it, it's just a time to highlight that 
we do have many of these vaccines available for a reason. Yes, so, and they're safe. <laughs> safe, and they the keep, vaccine is safe. And they keep other patients and people in your family and community who, you know, the one thing that I think this uh, COVID epidemic or pandemic has brought to light is just how many people in your very close network would count as vulnerable and sick yes. or more prone to get very sick from a virus like COVID. We often kind of think that people who, you know, can get up and function during the day and go to a job are, are completely healthy. And if you look around and you're very, you don't look very far in a network to find people who are over 65 or have some kind of condition like asthma that can affect the lungs or that have had some need for cancer treatment and have a weakened immune system. And so all of these are part of the considerations that go into our prenatal counseling for, uh, you know, protecting pregnant women who, who are, you know, typically in a, in a more vulnerable group. So that's what comes to things like the influenza vaccine would be recommended every year. When it comes to, you know, creating more community or herd immunity, uh, that's where the Tdap vaccine uh, comes into play, which protects against tetanus, diphtheria, and pertussis. But Really, we're focused on pertussis for this one, which causes whooping cough. Yes. And we recommend it for mom every pregnancy because those antibodies can passively pass on to the baby, but also to any, you know, family and close caregivers for the baby to have a booster in adulthood. That doesn't have to happen every pregnancy, but, you know, it has to be current. Right. And, and you know, we don't know where this COVID kind of season will, will go. There, there is a chance that we will see it. Uh, kind of wax and wane seasonally like influenza does. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I, I'm kind of just projecting here, but, but if, for example, a seasonal vaccine comes out for something else, whether it's COVID or another virus, you know, these preventing this kind of pandemic is exactly why we recommend it for pregnant women. And, you know, hopefully we don't find out that there is higher risk for pregnant women and COVID progression, but for other viruses, it does. And so, as these vaccines are available, they're especially important for pregnant women. I could not agree more. And thank you for all of this great information. It's very useful. And it's, of course, helpful to hear it from an OBGYN and someone who's with ACOG and helping create some of the policies that are coming out around COVID-19 and prenatal care. Well, my pleasure, Susie. Thank you all for listening. Don't forget, you can reach out to us at Bento anytime. You can find us on Instagram at MyBento. You can find us online at MyBento.com. And you can email us at UpYourGlow at MyBento.com. For those of you who want to check out the new guidelines from ACOG, I have linked that website in the description of this podcast episode. And please leave us a review. Don't forget to wash your hands. Thank you for everyone who can stay home. Thank you to our amazing frontline healthcare workers. I no longer work at the bedside, but it's a part of me and who I am. And my heart goes out to all of you who are serving others, pharmacists, grocery store clerks, all the people who are (laughs) shipping our, our Binto every day to all of you. We are so grateful for you. And in times like these, it's really powerful to come together and remember that preventative health matters and that our health is really the one thing that we have because our health 
gives us life. I hope you can enjoy the rest of your stay at home and listen to our other podcast recordings if you haven't yet. Cheers. Cheers.